You know, as Greg kind of described there, uh, this is home for us. And so they're really, this has been the most bittersweet season of our life. It really does feel like going off to college again. Uh, I remember when I went off to college, my parents were so sad <clears throat> that they bought a dog. And uh, <clears throat> I think this time we are so sad that we bought a dog. Uh, kind of regretting that <laughs> right about now. Um, man, planting Story Church this last really six, eight months has been a wild, wild ride. And it has been honestly the hardest season of my life, but also of our life, and also the sweetest. And over the course of the last six, eight months, we've just gotten to watch God do incredible things. Um, over and over, almost every other day, there's another story of some random occurrence, some random connection, some open door that God puts in front of us, a person that reaches out to us. It's like every other day, it's just one more thing that feels on the outside or looks like a coincidence, but we know it's not. And by this point, I've just gotten so good at telling our core group who's building this church with us as we point out these things that God continues to do. I've just gotten so good at telling everybody, guys, y'all know I'm not this smart. <laughs> like, I am not this capable. I do not have this much forethought. We are just a part of what God has been up to already, and we are, we are on this wave that he is in charge of. And so it's been the sweetest, sweetest time. So thank you so much for your prayers, and thank you so much for your support. It's meant the world to us. Now, I'm not sure if you know why our church is called Story Church. And this morning, I just want to share with you a little bit about why it's called that. And it really begins with this quote from Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson said this, if you want someone to know the truth, you tell them. If you want someone to love the truth, you tell them a story. And that really is so true that stories drive home meaning and truth and an emotion deep into our hearts. And in reality, God himself is a storyteller. That's a great storyteller. This is the reason why you love to listen to someone tell a story. It's why you're drawn to good books and good movies. It's because God wired you that way. And he did that because he is a storyteller. That's why Jesus told stories. And God has always been telling a great story of him and his people. And that the Bible that you have is a culmination of so many of those stories that God wants to reveal to us and to remind us of the great story that he is telling. And I truly believe that when you look at specific moments in God's story, maybe it's a story in your Bible or a story in your life, if you look at a specific moment, you will see compelling, beautiful, and powerful stories over and over and over. But I really do believe that if we zoom out a little bit from what's right in front of us, as we read the stories in the Bible and we zoom out just a little bit further, we will begin to see the great story that God is telling. And we'll begin to see how what's happening in this part of the story is connected to this part of the story. It's connected to that part of the story and ultimately how it's connected to my story. And so when we begin to see how so much of what God has been doing through different people throughout thousands of years and how it's all connected, we really begin to see that God is the greatest storyteller. And I believe the same is true for this season, that we are right in the midst of celebrating the Christmas season. It's compelling, it's powerful, it's a beautiful story that you might be very familiar with. But this morning, I want you to think about what you know about Christmas. What is it that we're celebrating? When we celebrate Jesus, 
his arrival, his birth, the beginning of his journey and all that it leads to. But I want you to think about this. How does the Christmas story begin? When you sit down and you want to tell somebody the Christmas story, maybe you want to tell your kids about this season and why, where do you begin to tell the Christmas story? Maybe your mind goes to the announcement. Maybe you begin to think about the genealogies of all the people who ultimately lead to Jesus. Maybe you think about Mary and the angel who comes to her and tells her what's about to happen. But here's what I want you to see this morning, that if we zoom out just a little further, we will see a fuller picture and the truly great story that God is telling and the story that we really are celebrating in this season. We often begin the Christmas story by thinking about Mary and the angel that came to her, but this morning I want you to see that the beginning of the Christmas story actually happens so much earlier. So if you have a Bible this morning, would you turn with me to the very, very beginning of your Bible, to the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we would love to send you home with one. You can grab one at the Welcome Center and take it home with you. But as you turn there, in the book of Genesis, in the very, very beginning of our story, God is creating everything that we know from nothing. And then it says that day by day, he begins to create things. And on the sixth day, he creates people. And he goes on to describe it as being very good. And yet it only takes a few chapters from that moment on before those people that God has created rebel against him. And in doing so, they break and sever the relationship with God and they break the creation that he has placed them in. And it's because of this act of rebellion that creation is broken and then God steps in and he begins to describe all that is now going to happen. Because of your choices and your act of rebellion, because of your sin, creation's going to be different now. It's now cursed. And here is what it's going to be like. And here's what he says. He says, because of what you've done, people will now experience suffering, sickness, and death. Because of what you've done, childbearing will now be painful. Because of what you've done, people will have to work and fight against the land in order to cultivate and grow food. The plentiful and generous garden is now gone. And in the midst of God's explanation of all of these curses and all of the things and the ways in which creation has been broken and all of the consequences we now face, God brings us good news. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 with me. We'll put the words up on the screen. But in the midst of all of this, God brings us good news, and here's what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, when you first read that, that may not really sound like good news. It sounds cryptic. What is that about? How is that good news in the middle of all these curses? But what I just read is described as the proto-evangelium. That's just a fancy word that really just describes this is the first delivery of the gospel. This is the first delivery of the good news. That in the midst of the bad news, in the midst of the consequences and the curses, God brings good news. And in that statement, God is speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to the deceiver and the devil. And he's telling him, I will put enmity, I'll put separation between you and the woman and her offspring who is to come. He's saying her offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
That sounds cryptic. We're not quite sure. It's confusing on first read. But what's happening here is God is describing for us Jesus. Here's what you have done, and because of that, there are consequences. But I'm telling you now, in the midst of all this bad news, there is going to come a day where her offspring will come, and I will put enmity between you and her offspring, and he will crush your head. He's saying Jesus, who will one day come, will have victory. He goes on to say you will strike his heel, meaning Jesus will suffer. Jesus will die. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus, in the end, has victory. And here's why this is so important. In the midst of the people's rebellion, in the midst of the worst news that the world has ever received, God says this will not be forever. And God is essentially saying here, I will fix what you have broken. Here's the consequences. Here's what you've earned, but I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to do what you could not. And from this point, at the very, very beginning of our story, God is preparing to do what he has just promised. And if you continue throughout the Old Testament, it's a story of God and his people and him calling them and rescuing them. But over and over, there are stories of what's happening to those people in that time. But it's also laying the foundation for the coming promise. That what God promised here in the third chapter of the Bible, he is one day going to bring to fruition in Jesus And this is why Jesus' arrival is such a big deal. It has been so many years in the making, thousands of years, something that God has promised to do from the very beginning, and it really is, when we zoom out, a truly great story. And I really do believe that the Christmas story that we celebrate now and in this time really does begin there. And so when Jesus finally shows up after all this time, there's great celebration. The Messiah that we've waited on our entire lives and generation is finally here. Can you imagine being those people who were just waiting for God's promise? They'd heard the bad news. They'd heard the good news, but here they are just waiting, waiting for the day when he would arrive, holding on to this promise that God will fix what we have broken. There is a great deal of anticipation you can imagine that they have. And not only that, but not only is there a great anticipation, but as they wait, what comes with it is also a great deal of expectations that they have. They have lots of expectations of who they believe that the Messiah will be be, and what he's going to be like and what he's going to do. And what becomes very clear once Jesus arrives, it becomes very clear very quickly that Jesus is not quite what they expected. That Jesus is not quite the type of king they're expecting. And he brings news that they're not quite expecting. I mean, think about it. Jesus is a very different type of king. What king in all of history was born in a manger amongst the animals? What kind of king serves People. What kind of king surrounds himself with rejects and with the least of these? What kind of king rides a donkey? What kind of king refuses power? What kind of king sacrifices himself on behalf of his people? Jesus was not the type of king that people expected, and ultimately, he was not the type of king that the people 
wanted, which is why they ultimately reject him and why he's ultimately killed. You see, they wanted a warrior. They wanted a king who was going to come in and liberate them, that he was going to destroy their enemy, the Romans, who were oppressing them. And yet Jesus came to do something completely different. He told them, I'm here to defeat your enemy, but it's not who you think. Your enemy is sin. Your enemy is within you. It's death itself. And so all throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he taught and commanded people to do things that they were not expecting. And even as people begin to turn on him, in the story of Jesus in his life, even at the end of his life, when the story gets hard to read, when we see the people turn on him and they lead him ultimately to his death, even in the midst of those hard moments in his life, if we look closely, we can see that God is still at work and God is still telling a great story. You see, before Jesus was ultimately led to be crucified, he was beaten, punished, and he was brought before Pilate. Pilate was just the Roman governor of that area, and he governed the people on behalf of Rome. And he understands, the governor, who they bring Jesus before him, he understands that this is an innocent man. But the crowds are calling for him to punish and kill Jesus. And he knows that Jesus is innocent. And in in, an attempt to spare Jesus' life, he reminds the people, because of this time of the year, I will release one prisoner to you. One who is guilty, I will release to you free. And he's hoping that the people will recognize this man is innocent and he should be released. And yet, as Pilate pleads with the crowd, helps to persuade them, I want us to read the crowd's response. In Luke chapter 23, verse 18, here's their response to Pilate's request. It says, but the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us instead. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. This group of people who one week earlier As Jesus comes into the holy city, Jerusalem, on a donkey, they're crying out to him, Hosanna, which just means, God, save us. You are the Messiah we've been waiting on forever. Save us. And in the course of a week, as they recognize Jesus is not who they expected, he's not who they wanted, some of those same people are here in this crowd, and instead they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They're shouting out, free Barabbas instead. And this is a heartbreaking moment to read, but in the midst of it, it's also a reminder of the good news and the truly great story that God is telling. You see, because this interaction that we just read of this prisoner exchange and Pilate trying to release Jesus to them, this interaction we see is actually a summary of the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus came to bring, and it's what we really celebrate at Christmas. We see Barabbas is guilty in that moment. 
He is being punished for the crimes that he committed. There is no doubt about his guilt. And yet he is released. And Jesus is condemned in his place. And as heartbreaking as that is to read, that is the gospel. That is the good news. That's the good news that Jesus came to bring to us. That we are Barabbas. That you and I are Barabbas in this story. Every single one of us, that we are guilty just like he is. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has fallen short. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That means all of us, every single one of us, has fallen short. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us needs forgiveness from God. Every single one of us needs Jesus to take our place. That's a hard truth. It's hard to grasp that sometimes. And I'll be really honest with you this morning. I thought that I understood this idea. I really thought after years of ministry and following Jesus that I understood this, but recently I honestly recognized that I didn't fully understand it. You see, about a year and a half ago, I felt God give me just a heart and a burden for those who are incarcerated. I just continued to think about Jesus' words when he talked about those who were in prison, and I just felt God leading me to say, I wanted to be in a place where I could be with, serve, love, encourage, and pastor some men incarcerated in our local prisons. And so I began to serve there on some Saturday mornings just having conversations with these men, hearing their stories about what's going on in them and sharing the good news. And a men who are in prison for a large variety of things. And I thought that I understood this verse. All of us have sinned and fallen short. But as I sat in these rooms, as I sat across from some of these men, I quickly realized that I didn't. You see, I sat with these men, and they began to open up to me. They began to share with me their stories, what's happened to them, and also why they were where they are, the crimes that they committed. And some of them, as they began to share with me, I began to recognize they were in prison for some pretty horrific crimes, crimes where they should probably never be released from prison because of what they've done. And yet I began to share the good news of Jesus with them, the good news that Jesus brings forgiveness for even you. And as I shared that with them, my concept of grace was quickly challenged. And I really began to ask myself, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that this man sitting across from me, who should never be out in public again because of what he's done and he's guilty, do I believe that Jesus brings forgiveness for even him? And as I wrestled with it, and I recognized that it was hard, I began to realize that the reason I was struggling is because I was comparing them and their sin to me. And I didn't understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I was comparing them to myself. And I began, I continued to think, well, my sin is not as bad as theirs. Theirs is really, really bad. And I continue to think, I know God, God, I know you can forgive me of what I've done, but can you forgive them of what they've done? And then verse 23 hit me. 
And I really began to understand and recognize that while I have not broken any law, while I am not incarcerated in a local prison, I am just as guilty as them. That I, in God's eyes, am just as guilty as them. That all sin is sin. There's not a ranking system. No sin is worse than others, but we love to do that. We love to say to ourselves, I know I lied, I know I gossiped, I know I got drunk, I know I stole. Well, at least I didn't blank. Well, I know I'm bad, but at least I'm not as bad as them or those other people over there. And we love to rationalize. I know my sin is bad, but it's not as bad as blank. But God doesn't do that. Every sin, whether we consider it to be big or small, is a personal choice that we make to turn our backs on what God wants for us and what he's commanded us to do. It's us following what we want and not him. Sin, the word itself, the Greek word there is hemartia. It literally translates to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. I want you to think about an archery target, right? When you're shooting there, you're aiming for the very center, the bullseye. You have a target that you're shooting for. The word sin literally means to miss it. And whether you miss by a little or you miss by a lot, a miss is still a miss. Every sin is equal. Look at what James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote to us in the New Testament. He said, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Every sin is equal. And the punishment for our rebellion is severe. The Apostle Paul tells us, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. If we turn our backs on what God has commanded us to do and wants for us, then the penalty of that is severe. And this is why Jesus is marched up a hill and crucified on a cross. It's punishment. It's severe punishment. And it's the punishment that you and I deserve. But he is there in our place. All of our sin is equal, and it all deserves the same punishment. And what I realized as I was sitting across from these men is I really began to recognize While we've made different choices in our lives, and while society will treat us differently, at the end of the day, in God's eyes, in regards to grace and forgiveness from our creator, I am just as guilty as you, and I need just as much grace and forgiveness as you. And when I began to really wrestle and understand that, I began to really recognize how truly great God's gift of grace is. And how truly great of a story God is telling. One of the most quoted verses of the Bible in all of history is probably, most likely, John 3, 16. And here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the great story that God is writing. We've failed. We deserve punishment. But God stepped in. And it didn't just start when Jesus died. It didn't just start when he was born. From the very, very beginning of our story, when we rebelled, when we broke creation, God stepped in and said, I will fix what you have broken. And I love the world so much that I will give my only son 
to save them. That love is immense. That grace is immense. God truly does love the world and love you. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is just telling us that God made Jesus to bear the weight of all of our sin and the punishment of it. He didn't know any sin. He was sinless, but yet he bore it and he went in our place. God's love is immense. Romans 6.23 also tells us, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is what God has done, and he doesn't charge, he doesn't make you earn it, it's a free gift that he offers to us. And I love this, Romans 5.8, the Apostle Paul also tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'll read it again. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God does this great thing for us, not once you get your life together, not once you decide to start making the right choices. You don't earn a thing. God doesn't forgive you because you've started to live a good life. God doesn't forgive our debts because you've paid them off in some way. It says, while you were still far from him, he did this for you. And he offers it to you. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to start making the right choices that today you can receive this free gift. And there is no better reminder of this than at Jesus' final moments on the cross. You see, when Jesus was crucified, we're told that he had a prisoner, two criminals crucified with him, one on either side of him. And one of those criminals, in the midst of his agony and despair, he cries out and begins to mock Jesus. And he tells Jesus essentially, you claim to be this great king, you claim to be the Messiah, well, look at you now. You're dying here with us. If you claim to be this king, then come down from your cross. And yet the other criminal hears him, and he responds. I want to read to you what he says. He said, the other, it says, the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Ultimately, here's what that man is doing. With his final breaths, this man is saying, Jesus, I believe that you, that I believe that I deserve to be here. I've made choices and I'm receiving the consequences of those choices. I'm being punished. He's saying, I believe that you are who you claim to be. And I believe that you do not deserve to be here. And he also says, no one believed you to be a king, Jesus. They mock you. They put a crown of thorns on your head. They put a robe on you. They mock you. But I believe that you are a king. And with his final breaths, he says, I believe that you are a king. Please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the perfect picture of the gospel. Jesus taking our place. That this man who will not come down from that cross and be able to make all the right decisions, he is at the end and he's receiving the punishment, but even there in that moment, he cries out to Jesus and Jesus forgives him.
This is the good news, that Jesus dies in our place and that he doesn't stay dead. That three days later, he comes back, defeating the grave and bringing forgiveness for all who would call on him. The good news that it's not something that you earn, but it's something that you can receive even in your final moments dying on a cross. This is why Romans 10.9 tells us that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's as simple as it can be. Have you done that? I want you to consider and ask yourself, have you done that before in your life? Have you acknowledged your own sin? Have you believed that Jesus is who he says he is? Have you invited him to be the king of your life? Have you asked him to save you? And if you've never done that before, then maybe today is that day for you. Maybe you've heard about Jesus before. Maybe you've heard a lot about him from other people. Maybe your whole life you've been told that faith is really just a list of do's and don'ts or that God is up there just waiting for you to mess up and to punish you in return. This morning, I don't want you to hear about Jesus. I want you to see him for yourself and I want you to see him clearly. I want you to see the loving God, the humble servant who is willing to take your place and who offers you forgiveness for all that you've done. I want you to know that Jesus is telling a great story in your life. Whether you believe in him now or not, he has been telling a great story in your life that has led you to be here today to hear this good news. And he wants you to see him for who he really is, the loving, humble king who takes your place and offers you forgiveness and a new life with him. And if you've never done that before, I wanna invite you. In just a moment, we're gonna sing a song, and I want you just to take some time in that song, and I want you just to pray. Just speak to God in your head. And I want you to invite him to come into your life. In the same way the man on the cross, I want you to just acknowledge your sin. God, I've made mistakes. Jesus, I know that you have lived a sinless life, And I want to recognize and acknowledge that you took my place. Come into my life. I want to receive this gift. And maybe that's why you're here today. And for those who do know him and accept this gift, here is what is true immediately. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You immediately become a new creation. The old you is gone There's now a new you living a new life with a new purpose. And maybe this morning you just need to be reminded of that. I want you to see that God is telling a great story in your life and that it is connected to the great story that he has always been telling. This morning you may see only what's right in front of you, but if you zoom out enough, you will see that God's telling an incredible story that you are a part of that started in the very beginning of his story with us, has continued and has continued on, maybe to come to you this morning to change your life. And it's your story, and it's a story that you are connected to. And so this morning, I want to take some time to remind us of this. And I want us to partake of the Lord's Supper together.
In just a moment, the Lord's Supper team, during this next song, they're gonna pass the elements and I want you to hold on to them. And I want you to take them on your own during this next song. And as we do, I want you to be reminded of this, that when we take the bread and we take the cup, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. It's a reminder of the good news. And so as you take it this morning, take some time, reflect and pray, but be reminded that Jesus' arrival was thousands of years in the making. And God had always promised to fix what we had broken. And so as you take the bread and drink the cup, would you be reminded of the great story that God is telling and how it's really your story? That Jesus gave himself for you to make you new, to forgive you, and to make you a new creation. And it's what we remember and we celebrate every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. On the night Jesus was betrayed, it says that he took bread. He broke it and gave thanks. And he said to his disciples, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Take this, eat this, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. As you take this, drink this, and do this in remembrance of me. For every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns again. And so as you partake this morning, be reminded, God is telling and has always been telling a great story, and it's your story. Let me pray. Father, thank you for that reminder this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God. God, we thank you that you have come to do what we could not do for ourselves. And so, Father, I pray this morning for those of us who do not know you, that we would trust in your free gift. We would trust that you are who you say you are and that you have taken our place willingly. Father, would you come into the lives and the hearts of those this morning who do not yet know you? Father, I pray that you would remind us too this morning that we are new creations. The old us is gone. There's a new us with a new purpose and a new life. Lord, remind us of that in these moments. Lord, we love you. You're a good God telling a great story. We love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.